Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC and more than 20 other coins. Download the Crypto.com app now to find out how much you could be earning. This is the eighth episode in the Why Bitcoin Now series, in which we take a closer look at Bitcoin in the context of macroeconomic forces, including the pandemic and the economic response. The most recent episode in the series came out the day of the election, and now here we are recording this on Friday afternoon, and at this moment in time, it looks like Joe Biden will become the 46th president of the United States. Here to discuss how this could affect Bitcoin are Dan Tapiero, co-founder of 10T Holdings and Gold Bullion International, and Kathy Wood, CEO and CIO at ARK Invest. Welcome, Dan and Kathy. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having us. There's so much to discuss about this crazy Groundhog Day week. We're all basically still going through. Hopefully by the time this comes out, we won't still be going through it. But first, let's discuss the elephant, or in this case, donkey in the room, the presidential election. At this moment, the most likely scenario we're looking at is that we'll have former Vice President Joe Biden as our next president. How do you think a changeover from a Trump administration to a Biden one will affect Bitcoin? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, this is what I love about our political system. I don't think a lot is going to change because this is really a regulatory question. And I don't think, uh, I, I, don't, I don't see a lot of changes on the regulatory front, although uh, the, the head of the OCC, uh, we, I really love the direction he's going in. As long Brian as he Brooks. stays in that, yeah, Brian Brooks, uh, as, as long as he stays in that position, I think we're going to have a force for good. If Jay Clayton is chosen, chosen sure. for a different position away from the chair of the SEC, we might get someone more friendly, I think, uh, to crypto. Uh, I, I think uh, given all of the uh, stable coins and, you know, the, the uh, currency backed uh, coins that each country is starting to issue, I think there's a certain acceptance of this now. And, you know, if you want to move into the modern age, you kind of have to be with it. And I think this administration would like uh, to, to be a part of that movement. But again, on the regulatory side, if there's some displacement at the SEC, uh, we might see things moving. What I find interesting is I have been used to watching all of these financial regulators compete with each other over the years. And I feel and I for power, that is. 
And I've been waiting for Jay to respond to Brian, but uh, I haven't seen much movement. Uh, so I think we could get someone more friendly and maybe some competition from a regulatory point of view, meaning and it, a positive point of view. And when you say you've been waiting for Jay Clayton, the chairman of the SEC, to respond to Brian, you mean in what way? Like in a way where he would be more friendly to crypto, kind of, you know, in a competitive way or? It, well, you know, basically, this is my turf and it's a turf thing. Oh, uh, I see. It's a turf thing. Uh, uh, in uh, 2006, I think, uh, was the first time I ever saw regulators work together. And that was when they all wrote a letter and said, we don't like these exotic home equity loans. They were united. Now, you back then I was saying, wait a minute, this is really bad because they never get together. This is going to cause a lot of problems, which of course it did. Um, this time, uh, I would expect not that. I would expect someone to be looking at what Brian is doing and saying, wait a minute, uh, you know, I should be weighing in on this. It's a little bit of a competitive regulatory dynamic that I've witnessed over the years. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'll, I have a little bit more to add to that. But why don't we, Dan, why don't you say what you think? Sure. I, I don't think the election is going to be determined for quite some time. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, could run easily into late December. Uh, I think the Supreme Court eventually probably has to weigh in. The votes are just too close. And Trump, uh, is just not going to, you know, he's just not going to sit down and say, okay, I've lost uh, because he's lost by 5,000 votes in one state. So I think you're going to have recounts in multiple states. I don't think they can start the recounts until after December 3rd. That's when the official, I guess, vote gets handed in by each of the states. And then again, each of the states has a different view about when, you know, when does vote counting stop? So I think this is a almost as complex an issue as, as Bitcoin, maybe not quite as complex, but it, it's very complex. I think it's going to take a while. And every time I think that we've tried to count out Trump, and, and again, I, you, you could have started doing this in early 2016, uh, he, he's uh, defied the consensus. So I'm not really willing to bet against him, even though it, it does look, it's leaning one way or another. I really, I just don't know. And I think that uncertainty actually has been helping uh, the Bitcoin price action, uh, you know, helping gold as well. But look, the big relief is that uh, this, from my perspective, why is the market up so much the last few days? Because the 20 percentage point gain uh, increase in the long-term capital gains tax that Biden had outlined seems to be off the table. And so that is basically it. Right. Like that. That's why we're doing what we're doing uh, in the markets, because, you know, maybe they raise it some amount. But that 20 percent was, uh, you know, was was going to be destructive, completely destructive. Um, Now that the Senate and the House have picked up a little bit of a Republican bias, clearly the socialist or I would just left leaning. uh, Well, let's say extreme left agenda uh, that some people had feared. uh, that would come along with a blue wave, that, that's not going to happen. So the more uncertainty also, if it drags on past uh, December into January, I think there'll be more of a reliance then on monetary policy. That's another reason, I think, for the sort of this 50% move in Bitcoin in the last few weeks, or 30 40%, um, is that they won't, they won't get fiscal together. And so if things do soften or if they are nervous about things, you're going to get more on the monetary and, you know, that was confirmed a little bit by the ECB and the Bank of England uh, this week. 
that you know they're thinking about additional bond buying, et cetera. So, yeah, I was I was going to add uh, uh, working in the equity markets. It, it was very interesting for me to watch the equity markets move up into the election. This has been a decent year, certainly for the Nasdaq, and uh, and so the market, in its wisdom, I think saw saw effectively gridlock, which is what we have now. You know, with a Republican Senate and uh, a Democrat House. So uh, I was, uh, I was, even though uh, Biden's numbers were going up in the polls, the market was going up. And I've, I've watched many elections over the years, and I've been surprised uh, uh, at the market and its wisdom. I think also one of the things is going on. There are flashpoints in the world, and I think it emanates from you know, from all of these unhinged monetary policies, uh, you know, you're set, uh, I guess Argentina's uh, uh, peso is down 30% this year. The Turkish lira is now down 30%. And I do uh, believe that people, especially in emerging markets uh, and Asia, especially remember when the Thai bot devalued in, I think it was 1997, Nobody yeah. thought nobody thought anything of it. Who cares? Thai bot, who cares? Uh, it was the beginning of a domino effect. And I'm wondering if what might be getting into Bitcoin now is a little bit of a, a sense of a domino effect here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's so much to unpack in what you guys just said. So I actually want to go back to the initial comments about the different appointments, because I do, um, you know, Kathy, when you mentioned Brian Brooks, um, by the way, people should listen to the episode um, I did with him where I, you know, I asked him all kinds of questions about what he's doing at the OCC. And yes, he has been so extremely friendly to the crypto industry. He, you know, did come from Coinbase previously. Um, and he really understands the problems that the crypto industry faces and um, understands the levers of government. Um, however, I will say also, actually, there are uh, some good signs in that, you know, even though a lot of these positive moves that the OCC made for the crypto industry after he was appointed as acting controller of the currency, um, actually, news came out afterward that they had been in the works for quite some time. So I do think there are, you know, other people um, in these agencies that sort of understand what's going on and are, you know, are working to make things better. Um, however, what I will say is because he's acting controller and he hasn't been confirmed, I'd, I don't know if he will survive, um, you know, uh, through a Biden administration. I mean, he might, but just from what I heard, I think that this is the kind of appointment where a Democratic president would want kind of like someone that they, you know, fr somebody from their party to uh, to have in that position. So, um, you know, that that may that may switch over. However, I have heard. Um, you know, people who are steeped in the DC world saying that they think that a switch over to a Biden administration will, will basically, um, also potentially re remove some other people who tend to be quite problematic for the crypto industry. And so they view it as a positive in other respects. Um, and so, yeah, you know, Dan went right into a question I was going to, um, ask a little later, but we might as well just go there now because, um, obviously the counting has been very slow. Um, you know, at the moment, as I started, uh, I said it was trending in a direction that's positive for Biden. However, um, as we know, Trump has previously refused to say whether or not he would accept the outcome of the election if he loses. And so now that it does appear that he 
will probably lose and his campaign is already mounting these legal challenges in the different states. How do you think the prospect of these legal challenges that drag on and put into doubt this transition of power in the U.S., how do you think all that will affect Bitcoin if it happens? Dan, do you want to start this? Well, you know, I mean, I think it is happening. Um, you know, as I said, he's not going to concede. And I don't think that's connected to his previous comments. Uh, I think if I were running for president and I lost the whole thing in 5,000 votes, uh, I would want to recount. So this is completely, I think, within the realm of what is reasonable. Uh, maybe foreigners don't understand this. I'm getting messages from people around the world like, why is Trump not stepping down? Well, because it's part of our process. In 2000, we had the recount uh, that was normal. And I suspect four or five states are close enough uh, that there will be recounts. So look, it's positive for Bitcoin in the same way, in a sense, that it's positive for gold. There's a little bit of uncertainty premium. But as I said, I think the key driver here is that we're just not going to see those uh, those ex more extreme left policies that I think some of the markets were uh, were worried about. So and I guess I, I might have a little uh, more of a different take on that. If we had thought that socialist policies were going to start permeating the U.S., I would I would definitely uh, think that that would be a reason to take an insurance policy out with Bitcoin. So uh, I'm I'm taking my cues more from the equity market and and uh and and i do think as i said that bitcoin is is going up there's a tremendous amount of liquidity in the world so that's the monetary policy uh but also these flashpoints in terms of uh, de uh, uh devaluation you see when i see scrolling on bloomberg uh in one day one day after the other turkish lira does this turkish lira there's you know there's something going on out there and usually uh, mistakes uh, are made. When mistakes are made, the emerging markets are the most vulnerable. So that's why I keep my eye on them. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that. Um, but you know what? I think the greatest mistake people in this space make, and look, I've been, I guess I'm saying this coming from 30 years of trading in the macro uh, markets, is that, you know, I actually, I think Bitcoin is just doing its own thing. And I think people's attempts at trying to figure out why it's up this week or why it's down that week aren't really relevant. I mean, I can make the case that you've got enough independent Bitcoin positive news, you know, between what Sailor is doing, between PayPal, Square, um, just, you, you know, the fact that uh, Barry's uh, is uh, grayscale thing is eating up all the Bitcoin outstanding. You know, we're, we're in a position where supply is getting really tight. Um, you know, regardless, we could have any outcome for the presidential election, uh, any outcome, uh, you know, for secretary of treasury. Again, I think that the concern before was about Warren getting in. And now I think that's less, less of an issue. Um, so like, I, I just, I think there, there's, there is some applicability of the macro to a uh, Bitcoin, but I actually, I think Bitcoin's bigger than all of this stuff. Yeah, my, I, and I agree with you on what's happening on the corporate front. Uh, we Square just reported last night just a boom in in Bitcoin trading, uh, and PayPal embracing it as well. There's a competitive dynamic that's very interesting. And PayPal, what's interesting, PayPal has a uh, a, a relationship where with Mercado Libre in um, in Latin America, and that's where one of these flashpoints is, right? Uh, so 
I do think that. And then also the idea that um, a, a micro strategy and a square itself would put, you know, put some of its cash into Bitcoin, some or all of its cash. You know, when micro strategy did it, I, I looked at the management team and I said, OK, who? Wow. Well, you know, this is a this is interesting. And I saw that the CFO had had a lot of experience in Latin America uh, probably used to the hyperinflations and the roller coaster there. Um, but I, I, I did think what they did was extreme. Square following on. I think we're going to see more. And then this notion of 21 million units, we're at 18 and a half. It's going to start resonating a little bit more. Well, but one thing, so I totally understand your point that right now there are just so many forces uh, that are boosting the Bitcoin price. But you know, in particular this week, there was like very um, sharp movement in Bitcoin that maybe was tied to the presidential election. I wanted to ask you guys about that because, you know, at this moment that we're recording on Friday afternoon, yesterday, Bitcoin hit $15,000 for the first time since the early days of January 2018. And not only that, but within the last 24 hours, it had risen so precipitously that there was a point where it almost reached 16,000. Mm -hmm. So I wondered what you guys thought of that, like why that was the case. I mean, it has since pulled back, but I just wondered, you know, if you thought it had to do with a presidential election or something else. I, I think uh, one source of demand after another is starting to impact it. And if you look at uh, Yasin El Mandra, our crypto analyst, uh, just wrote uh, actually two, a two-part Bitcoin paper. Uh, trying to figure out, okay, uh, the question was, are institutions ready for Bitcoin? And he turned that on its head and said, wait a minute, is Bitcoin ready for institutions? And, mm. and uh, looked at all of the ways to get access, exposure to Bitcoin from an institutional point of view. And, uh, you know, the, the, the easy way to just dimension it is it trades like just one of the mega cap stocks, just one you know, in, in our market. Now, that's pretty big. And as the price increases, there's more, quote unquote, market cap. Uh, but, you know, if institutions are beginning to leg in here, and there certainly is a lot of support uh, for that, you know, from a Fidelity, uh, the Cambridge Research Associates, uh, you know, report saying, hey, you should at least check this out. Uh, we have Backed, we have Square, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, infrastructure moving into place, which is legitimizing it from an institutional point of view. It's still not really easy to do, uh, but uh, I do think there are some adventurous, if not, uh, it would probably be more on the alternative side, of course, but uh, uh, more, more of the fast adopting institutions, are, are, they might be just, you know, dipping their toes in. Dan, yeah. do you have an opinion? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I'm uh, I, I'm head of an investment committee for an endowment uh, of relatively significant size, and um, you know that's sort of my uh, my you know charitably. I'm not I, I don't I don't receive any compensation for that. But um, and so and and I've done that for ten years, and so I'm plugged in a little bit to how other endowments are thinking and acting. Uh, and I will say in Q one Q2 of 19 last year, we put 1% of the entire endowment into Bitcoin, uh, a, a touch into Ethereum, very small percent, and a little bit into what I would call some di other digital asset fund exposure. But, you know, and, and at the time, I think we were the first endowment of this type to do that. 
Um, the investment committee is sort of very forward thinking. Um, and, you know, and our advisors and the people we spoke with, you know, who, who help us, you know, manage that uh, portfolio, you know, they, they really kind of caught on. I think they really, they got it. And, you know, when they see guys who are sort of more from a traditional background, um, being able to explain to them why, you know, at least 1%, I think we probably should have had three to 5%, but, you know, 1% is that Wences Casares thing, get off zero, just put 1%. That's very helpful with institutions. And, and for 10 Holdings, we've been speaking with lots of institutions. There are, there are more people who are getting it and who are sort of getting ready and warmed up. So I think that just I think the infrastructure is there to handle the, the 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 flood, but you know the price will go up. So you know it'll double or triple or whatever it is in whatever time period. You know that's what Bitcoin is is meant to do. It's gonna you know it's a it it, it un, unlike these you know currency pegs in a way, um, or the opposite of the currency pegs. The one thing that uh, there's no control of is is the upside. The price will will go to wherever the price needs to go. So yeah, so uh, Yasin just wrote, uh, I think another blog. I'm, uh, if if it's not out now, it, it will be soon, and uh, it may have been part of our second paper, and uh, basically uh, took a look at ten years worth of data, all of the assets that uh, you know are available to institutions. Uh, and the managed assets uh, uh, at that, so those that are actually managed by third parties. Um, And that's about 110 trillion in the world. So a 10-year study um, in order and and using correlations of returns and all of the the usual uh, uh, metrics um, determined that the, um, in order to minimize the volatility of putting uh, Bitcoin in the portfolio and still enjoy the return. I think that was a two and a half percent, a two percent position. Uh, if you wanted to maximize the return and were willing to accept more volatility, that would have been a six and a half percent position. And uh, the punchline, and this is uh, this is going to be years away, but if that six and a half, if institutions were to um, hew to that six and a half percent in Bitcoin. Uh, that would, uh, you know, all other things equal, knowing what we know about the supply out here uh, and and the fact that more than 50% of all the Bitcoin holders right now uh, have held the Bitcoin for more than a year uh, and many for more than five years. Uh, just so you have to take that out as a, you know, a supply constraint. Uh, the number he came up with as a price target and I don't want this plastered all over headlines and so forth, because this is just if, 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 lots of ifs there, is $500,000. Oh, wow. By what? And did he have like a, by a certain time period or just no, if these is, things happen? This will happen gradually. And, and believe me, we're talking about the institutional world. Uh, these sorts of things happen quite gradually. Yeah, but I think that's about, that's a, around the right number. I've quoted... I've been quoted at least 10 or 15 times in the past year with that kind of 300 to 500,000 number. It's not, it's just not too crazy. I mean, the market cap of Bitcoin now is call it 300 billion. Uh, if you understand what the, you know, the security apparatus is that is the Bitcoin network and you sort of contemplate 
what that kind of network is actually worth to the world. I mean, you could easily say it's worth two, three, four trillion. It's certainly worth more than one company in the NASDAQ. And so that can get you to that number. It's just that, look, it's it's a complex thing. Most, most people don't even realize, you know, that it is a network. They think it's a they think it's a, a price bobbing up and down or flashing on their Bloomberg uh, or that it's magic uh, money uh, or what, whatever it is. So magic Internet money. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I think there's still a lot of residual. You'd think that would go away by now. But I still, you know, meet people who are definitively hard. No, it's fraudulent. I'll have nothing to do with it. Um, wow. It's not you know, my Dan, you, yeah, Dan, you have a, a a lot of credibility in this call because you came out of the physical gold world. And there's I'm sure there are a lot of your former colleagues, or maybe they are still your colleagues, who wouldn't touch Bitcoin. So you've it's been very interesting to to watch what watch your evolution. Yeah, well, Dan, actually, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Like um either your uh, conversion or, or um, you know, watching somebody else's, like, what does it take to, you know, take someone like that and have them finally understand what Bitcoin's about? So, I mean, I think the most natural, uh, the first adopters really, in theory, should be gold people because we're from this hard money school. And so, you know, people out there in the Bitcoin world who are attacking gold, they don't really understand, I mean, they don't really understand uh, all the nuances that come along with owning physical gold, and no need to get into it here. Um, but the philosophy behind owning gold just generically is very, very similar. And so I think, you know, in a way, and I've said this before, the gold guys are kind of like cousins to the Bitcoin uh, crowd. And it's really sort of the, the long only equity crowd in America that sort of needs to be converted. And the reason they aren't is because they never think about currency, right? They just, if the dollar goes down, if fiat is going down, it's good because it generally has been supportive of the equity market. So for most American investors, fiat is the NASDAQ for them. Uh, Meaning fiat going down makes sense because the devaluation of the dollar over time uh, always has shown up in the S&P or in the NASDAQ. So Americans aren't as natural, let's say, you know, as the Argentines or other people who have grown up with trying to understand currency. Americans are not as advanced. And so being a gold guy and being a hard money, uh, you know, uh, someone who understands hard money, the jump to Bitcoin is easy. Um, What's difficult is to understand what exactly Bitcoin is. And so you have to go and you read the Satoshi White Paper and you say, okay, that solves the Byzantine general's problem. Okay, and why is that important? And then you say, oh my gosh, he turns electricity into security. Bitcoin is a security network, right? That's the genius of this thing. That it's, you know, so it's actually, Bitcoin is actually a lot more than just gold. Gold is a store of value, but it's not programmable. There's no lightning network on Bitcoin. There's no, you know, digital asset ecosystem. I mean, I think the the real opportunity uh, of of Bitcoin is much, much greater than just digital gold. Um, You know, so, and as Kathy mentioned before, there's a whole world um, of companies that are growing up in what I would call the digital asset ecosystem that are enabling 
you know, uh, enabling the uh, usage and transaction of cryptocurrencies. Uh, there are, you know, early stage sort of applications of blockchain technology that are relevant. Um, you know, the Bitcoiners hate that have, hate that word. Um, you know, I, I just think that the Bitcoin or, and the te- uh, Bitcoin and the technology that's behind it, or the invention, uh, you know, of Satoshi's and what it actually is, is just much bigger. And so, I lo- I mean, I'm very bullish gold. I think we're in the early stages of a bull market. I think the gold price will double. Um, but as Paul Tudor Jones says. Bitcoin will be the fastest horse. I think Bitcoin can go up 20 to 30x as gold doubles. Um, you know, it's just at an earlier stage, um, you know, of its development. But I mean, there's a lot there, I said, and <laughs> I, I should stop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so why don't we, um, you know what, we're going to regroup a little bit about election stuff because I still feel like there are certain questions there we should discuss. But first, let's take a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Back to my conversation with Dan and Kathy. So, so far, um, we've been, you know, mainly just discussing the presidential election and we have been talking about having a new administration that has a, a legislature that's controlled by the other party. However, there are, um, two elections that look like they'll be going to a runoff in January in Georgia, which would potentially control, um, determine the control of the Senate. And I just wondered what you thought, um, things would look like if we ended up with an administration with a legislature that that was controlled by the same party, for instance, if it was a Biden administration with a Democratic one, would that change your remarks in any way about how this could affect Bitcoin? It would change my remarks about how it would affect everything. Um, if uh, Because what you're talking about there is the so-called blue wave. Uh, and I do think we'd see tax rates going up pretty uh precipitously. And uh, I think the equity markets would go down. Uh, I think Bitcoin could serve as a place of safety or a refuge of some sort. So um, it's been interesting to watch the equities and bonds going up to the election. What we've seen is if you look from January of 18, just say people started thinking about the election way back then, uh, what you've seen is there's been an inflow into the bond market of more than $800 billion. And there's been an outflow of equities, uh, and this excludes share repurchases, to the tune of more than $400 billion. So uh, uh, investors in the equity market have been somewhat uh, uh, somewhat concerned about how investments will be treated here. Uh, so I, I think, uh, I think what you're seeing in the market with the odds going up that the Republicans will control the Senate, notwithstanding what you're saying about those two, uh, the odds have gone up. Uh, I think the, the equity market is levitating and it is interesting that, uh, Bitcoin is going with all assets are levitating. It's like, okay, the money is out there. Let's, let's see how many places we could put it. 
so I find that very interesting. And housing, housing as well, screaming. So I think we're beginning to see the very early days of the reserves that have been sitting on the central bank's balance sheet for a long time. They're being activated. There's That has been kindling for a long while, and we just put another dollop on it with the coronavirus. So we went the peak last time after 0809 was $4.5 trillion. Now, if estimates are correct, this could be $9 trillion just in the US by the end of the year. Uh, and it seems like risk taking has stepping up a bit, that the memory of 0809 and the fact that the equity market's been going up consistently since, uh, w- w- which has left a lot of people on the sidelines, it seems like they're stepping out and taking more risk. And I think that. Uh, Gridlock, if that's what we end up with, Republican Senate uh, and Democrat House, I think uh, the risk taking will continue uh, to increase or risk seeking will continue to increase. And that will include uh, Bitcoin. Um, it seems uh, it seems like a risky animal because it's volatile, uh, maybe not as volatile as it used to be, um, but uh, it it is a hedge. Of uh, it's an insurance policy, so you know I can see diversification of portfolios into many, many asset classes. Dan, yeah, no, I would broadly agree with that. You know, I would broadly agree with that. I, I just think you know, as long as the tail of the extreme uh, left and the you know Liz Warren type possibilities are gone, I mean, I don't think the Democrats, even if they win both, they don't really have a mandate to completely change everything in the country. I mean, this was, you know, the whole thing was basically it's a true. toss up. So I don't think they have that, you know, they don't have the that mandate. So, but no, but broadly, I, I think Kathy's right. Um, well, yeah. then, so let's also, you know, Kathy mentioned this briefly, but we really should discuss this more in depth because obviously <laughs> with all this stuff going on, there's also the pandemic, um, which in the U.S. looks like it's going into the third wave. Uh, there were 121,500 new cases yesterday, 1,100 deaths yesterday. Um, in the U.S., we're reaching almost a quarter million deaths um, total. And France, Germany, and England at this point are all entering new lockdowns. There's India and Russia, which are seeing high numbers. So, you know, it's only fall here. Um, We've still got fall and winter to go through. And I wondered how you expected this new wave of infections and the subsequent lockdowns to affect the economy and in turn how they would affect Bitcoin. I think it's, look, increased uncertainty. The U.S. economic data has been relatively strong. The Chinese data has been good. Europe is still floundering a bit. Um, You know, so I, I think it just it sort of takes the edge off of or the fear that things are coming back too quickly. Um, In fact, I think Jay Powell has sort of been very cautious. And look, that's all good because rates at zero are very supportive uh, for, you know, all sorts of assets. And, um, you know, importantly, look, I think the most important decision investors have to make in the next 10 years, so like the key thing during the 20s, will be what to do with that that, that part of the portfolio, the, the traditional portfolios that are 70, 30 or 60, 40, what to do about that 30 or, or 40? Because they're in government bonds or in bonds that are yielding very low uh, yields. Um, and they're not going to protect if we have a slowdown. They've sort of become neutered as a hedge component of the portfolio. 
They, their upside will be limited by the zero bound. And so as people realize uh, pensions and insurance companies, and we're already seeing this in Europe with negative yields, they're going to have to go out and find some real alpha. And, you know, I think the academic work certainly that's been done on what uh, what what happens to your portfolio when you add 1% uh, to Bitcoin or 3% to Bitcoin? The results are so dramatic that I think uh, it's hard for investors to ignore. Um, so, you know, that's... that's with, with the caveat that if you buy at the right time, because <laughs> there, no, I'm sure there are definitely no, people no, who Laura, buy... No, Laura, I don't, I don't... So I don't think that's right. I think that that's the greatest misconception. You know, if you're a, if you're a long-term... If you're, um, you know, an endowment or a pension, as I said, you know, you've got a 10-year horizon. There is no 10-year horizon that uh, you could buy today and you could buy for the next three years. You're going to be fine on a 10-year horizon. Yes, and that, on I agree with that. Is really, you know, so th th those big pools of capital, that $100 trillion plus that Kathy's talking about, um, I think they're going to make their, you know, they're starting to see this. And it's it's partly as a result of the bond yield staying low. And that's also partially a result of COVID hanging over everybody because everyone is still cautious and uncertain, even though my personal opinion is that it's sort of beyond the worst of it. March was the worst April that we're going to see. But, the, you know, people can remain cautious for another year or two. So, again, that keeps yields low. That keeps, you know, that, and that makes the institutional investors start to question, like, you know, what 30% of his portfolio is doing at, at 40 basis points. Right. And uh, I would, I would uh, say that this latest surge, I think in the U.S. will probably respond differently than Europe is. I mean, because uh, I think we're asking the question, wait a minute, this is a virus. The first lockdown did not work, really. So what do we think? Uh, why are we doing that again? So I, th I think there's more of that attitude in the U.S. And I think that actually uh, impacted the election, to be honest. I think, uh, you know, there was a clear difference. I mean, it, looking at the election results, if I didn't know anything, if I didn't know anything except uh, the, the numbers uh, of, uh, in, the, in Congress, Senate and the House, the Democrats lost seats in the House. Uh, the Republicans kept, kept the Senate, despite the polls saying otherwise. I would have said that, wow, uh, President Trump's coattails brought a lot of these people along. It did not seem like, or at least the, the, the uh, 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 I don't know how the vote will end, as Dan says, that it, it will be contested. But um, I would have said, wow, those are some coattails because that was a big change and, and, and was not predicted by any of the polls. Uh, and I think part of it, it was one party wanted to shut the country down and the other party did not. I mean, that's a little too black and white. But, uh, and so I, I do think that's why we are back in gridlocking Congress. I really do. All right. Well, I mean, we, this has been... Um sprinkled throughout the conversation, but let's just tackle this directly. In late August, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell introduced a new interest rate policy that will target an average 2% inflation, even if that means allowing for higher inflation for longer periods of time. So I wondered how you thought this policy would affect Bitcoin. Well, I don't, I don't think, you know, there's not a lot out of the central banks that's really relevant. I mean, 2% inflation, you know, I, I, I think... Uh, 
I mean, look, if they're obviously they're not going to care about two or three, it's it's bullish for uh, a Bitcoin. It just means there's more liquidity available out there. Um, they're going to let things run hot. But I just don't think we're in that old framework anymore. Um, you know, the old, you know, let's try to interpret monetary policy to mean something. It's just it's just not, you know, that's old school macro. I, you know, that's what you did in the 90s uh, and in 2000s. I think it's all rates everywhere are basically real rates everywhere, basically zero around the whole world and, and nominal rates are zero in a big chunk of the world. So if we get some, what you want to call inflation and the rate goes up 1%, I mean, it doesn't matter. I think we're in a post central bank world in a way, not post post monet, monetary policy world, I would say. I don't think they have much impact to, you know, ability to impact things. So, so I, I think uh, what Dan says, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of people after 0809, seeing the monetary base go up so dramatically, were worried about inflation. And uh, so here we are again uh, in the in the second big stage here. And I, I see fewer people worried now, which makes me worry a little bit more. In other words, I think complacency is where we could get into trouble here. So when I saw the two percent, and we'll let it go uh, go above two percent, uh, you know, not saying how far above because of how far below and how long it has been below two percent. I said, hmm. Now, so that I'm going to be looking at a few things. One, um, and and they have to do with the velocity of money, uh, which has been plummeting. And that's why it hasn't caused any inflation. Uh, when consumer confidence increases, uh, I have associated that in the past uh, with all, all we need to see is a cessation of the fall in velocity. You know, and, and we're already seeing, for example, um, in the housing market, we're seeing shortages of lumber and materials which is kind of an inflationary psychology. And we're seeing, uh, you know, the minimum wage. If you look at Amazon and uh, a number of other companies, they're talking about, yes, we're going to have a, a $15 minimum wage. Uh, and, and so you get people thinking, oh, okay, well, you just if, they, if we change the mindset from this, you know, I have to hold my money. I have to ho hold precautionary balances. I can't spend it because something could go wrong. Uh, then if they just stop acting like that, just a cessation of the decline in velocity would change the momentum here in terms of inflation. We've got uh, M2 at 25% on a year-over-year -year basis. It might be even higher than that right now. So while I don't think there's an inflation problem right away, I think... Uh, I, I, we're focused at ARC exclusively on disruptive innovation, Bitcoin, blockchain technology being that, but they're all deflationary in nature. You know, so I think there are these huge undercurrents of deflation and productivity gains that are going to hold inflation at bay. Uh, so I just I, I listen and I and I do hear the people not worrying about it anymore. And I'm not worried about it because of what I just told you. However, I don't like the complacency and I think because I think that's when mistakes are going to be made. So for that reason, I have upped my own insurance policy on, on Bitcoin. And I already owned a lot.
Huh. Okay. Well, yeah, let's actually dive a little bit more into Bitcoin because, you know, here we've discussed politics, we've discussed the pandemic. Um, and amidst all this, we also had this halving last spring, which cut the new supply of Bitcoin being produced in half to 6.25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes, down from 12.5. And so I wondered, as you're looking at these larger forces, and then in the middle of, of all that, you see the clock-like ticking of the Bitcoin software. How do you expect Bitcoin to perform over this next year? I know we did talk, you know, just generally um, without putting a time frame on it, but I, I'm kind of curious over this next year as we, you know, continue to kind of ride out the pandemic and uh, we just had a halving. Well, the last time we had a halving, it took a little while uh, for for. I don't know if it took a while for the knowledge to hit in or the actual impact to uh, to uh, make its way into the marketplace, but it was a setup for a very nice run. And I do think that's part of what's going on uh, this time as well, as people do the arithmetic. Uh, Yassine, uh, in his paper, put out, or, or it may be the night, next paper, but this uh, chart where you can track because the network is so transparent uh, how much Bitcoin has been held for five years and more, three years and more, one year and more, you know, 30 days. And the loyalty is pretty uh, uh, startling. I mean, 60% more than a year, you know, so a lot of people think it's this wild, crazy trading mentality at work, uh, um, but it's 60% more than a year. You know, equity portfolios, even even our own equity uh, portfolios, um, we might hold our names. We may have very little name turnover, but we'll be trading in, you know, around volatility. We're not seeing that in Bitcoin. I mean, at the margins, of course we are, but in terms of the vast uh, majority of the holders, um, I know some of it's lost, but, uh, and we don't know how much of uh, that 60%, but you know, they're, they're holders. So that's, that's quite significant. Dan, what do you yeah, think? I mean, look, uh, I think it's too hard to trade uh, Bitcoin. Uh, I think the certainty of a price projection over one year is dramatically less than over three years. So look, I would say, can Bitcoin go to 30, 40,000 by the end of next year? Sure. But I would have a higher degree of confidence that it could get to 70,000 in three years. So I just, I think, again, I think there's too much of this uh, historical, traditional, uh, or, or attempts at historical analysis or traditional analysis from other markets. Like, you know, to say, if X happens, X plus Y will then equal Z. I think, as I said, Bitcoin is just doing its own thing. It's an early stage technology, uh, you know, early stage monetary standard. I mean, it's so many different things. So uh, I could see it at, at almost any number, uh, honestly. And I, I think trying to finesse it, uh, it's just going to be heartache. I mean, this is one of the few times in life where you're really just given an opportunity to just sit back. If you have that luxury, you don't have to do any more. You can spend an hour or two reading about Bitcoin. You know, you've got your position. Uh, people always want to run around and do things and move around and like, be productive. You know, if you're long enough Bitcoin in the right percentage, that, you know, it, that, that, that's going to be enough. I just want to say one thing about Kathy's point. I've been 
you know, uh, I've admired her business and her focus uh, and how she set that up. I mean, I think it's sort of a new wave of companies uh, and also, um, you know, do, she's doing something better than the legacy system um, and, and, and the deflationary pressure that she's talking about that's coming from her industries is just so massive and it's in a way never been measured before. And so you're looking at these old things like the CPI, which were constructed, who knows when, 1948. I mean, it's like the Swift, it's like the Swift system. It's like pre-internet. Um, so, you know, just as an example, Zoom, for instance, I was supposed to go to Australia and meet investors for two weeks. I was going to have 20 meetings. Uh, COVID hits. I don't have to go to Australia. I don't have to spend two weeks, $50,000 on hotels and flights and this and that. I do one call with 20 investors, one hour, one call, finito. So tell me, is that measured in the CPI? No way. I just saved 50 grand just to not. So I just think that this is the most interesting time I can ever recall in my career um, because the change that's going on underneath this, the system or underneath uh, underneath the market, like the, the changes there, you know, yes, there's, there are people who are suffering now. Um, but, you know, there's been so much that's been pulled forward, uh, especially in Kathy's world. Um, so much that's been pulled forward that's sort of gone into hyperspeed. I mean, and again, Zoom is the perfect, a perfect example. Um, I don't think those things have been calculated and uh, normally, I, I'm worried about the complacency aspect as well, um, but uh, on inflation. But no, I, I, I'm not. And I actually really like Sailor's um, the way that he's looking at inflation, which is that um, you know I, I've got to keep up with my you know the 15% a year that the Nasdaq's going to do, or I you know he, so he's looking at his allocations based upon what relative assets do that that he's involved with. I like that. And and also, you know, the point that, yes, I mean, your cash at zero uh, with a 1% inflation rate, you're losing 1% a year. And so, you know, there are a bunch of powerful forces right now uh, that are interacting. And I don't think there's any analysis that's been done on that yet. They'll do it in three or four years. Um, and, and this confusion leads to opportunity. And, you know, that's why each of us in our own way are prospering, um, having focused on this new digital world. Well, I imagine Kathy actually probably has done some analysis and I was going to ask you about that, but why don't we jump to that question now? Because I know that one area that you've called out as ripe for disruption is banking. And obviously you've made like, you know, prescient um, investments in Square and such. So how do you see banking changing over the next few years? And um, obviously, how do you think that will affect Bitcoin? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So we believe that... um, I think the number is there are uh, about roughly $250 billion in bank branches. uh, And those are going to be stranded assets. We're going to walk around with bank branches in our pockets or our pocketbooks. Uh, Honestly, uh, we're we're shocked that uh, this year, JP Morgan, after shrinking its bank branch base, has has, uh, decided to move it up. And the only thing we can conclude, because 
at least they're thinking about crypto and digital wallets and so forth, is that uh, JP Morgan is aiming to become uh, the, all, uh, the Walmart or Costco of banking, which is very different from what they're perceived right now. They want to roll up the industry because we think the industry is in real trouble. And one of the reasons we think it is in real trouble is the yield curve is, while it's gone positive here, we think it's going to flatten and go negative longer term again. Because if you look at periods of very rapid inflation uh, and you go back to, I mean, uh, innovation, you go back to telephone, electricity, automobile in, in uh, the late 1800s, early uh, uh, 1900s, the yield curve was inverted more than half of the time there back then over that 50-year period to into the roaring 20s, with the average inversion being 100 basis points. Uh, and, that's, and that was primarily because of the burst of deflation that was occurring uh, associated with these new technologies. Uh, so um, we think banks are going to be commoditized. There's no way they can, they, they, they cannot jump into this new DNA. That's one thing I've learned over my career. There's old DNA, and they usually say to the newbies when they uh, surface, like Square and Venmo, either they dismiss them entirely or they basically say, we're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. That's our installed base. We can do that. We're spending this much on technology. Wrong DNA. They've yeah, but set up Kathy, their- you, and I yeah. Are old, you and I are old DNA, and we've, we've been making the transition. <laughs> well, you know, so, uh, but not, I, don't think organizational, I don't think organizational structures can. You know, when you think about, I mean, everything we do, whether it's autonomous, electric, you know, the auto manufacturers are not even, that's not how transportation is going to be going forward. You have to be, you have to be battery, you have to know batteries, you have to know software, you have to know artificial intelligence, you know, it's just a new ball game, new ball game. You and I as investors, I mean, I'm charged up by innovation, so I'm always seeking it out. Yeah. Um, and I certainly, I think one of the biggest mistakes that our industry has made, I think it's led to the most massive misallocation of capital in history, and that is the move to indexation, passive, especially after the tech and telecom bust and the 08-09 meltdown. More than half of all equities in the United States today are held in passive portfolios. That is really sad. Massive misallocation of capital. Uh, that's why I want us to stay ahead uh, as much as we can in the blockchain world, Bitcoin world. I know this is a global phenomenon, but I don't want the innovation associated with it to migrate because the capital markets aren't financing it, right? That's one of the reasons I started the company. They're not financing it. No, they're not. not financing and it. I, I know. I know. And in fact, uh, a lot of the innovation is moving uh, abroad. A lot of the funds are moving abroad and they don't even want American investors in them because of our regulatory system. So we risk being left out in the cold in some way. So like I'm out there like beating the drum saying, hey, you want to win in this race? You, you, you've got to make uh, the regulatory environment much more friendly uh, to innovation. Otherwise, we lose it to other countries, and especially now with China on the march, on the march, right? Literally on the march to become number one in innovation. The one thing we do very well here in the United States, though, is open source. Uh, the movement started prim- primarily here. Uh, I think Linus was from 
Norway, but uh, the yeah. the the movement started here, and I do think more and more industries are going open source. Of course, block ta- uh, blockchain, Bitcoin blockchain, that's open source. China's not going to allow that. They're not going to allow that. So they could be left out in the cold for that reason. I'm, I've been thinking a lot about this, but we in the United States have got to get our capital allocation straight and move away from the dinosaurs. That, that, that world is going to be really destroyed in many ways. And I think that you asked about banks and here I'm off on a completely worldview, but I really think banks are in harm's way. That's why they're underperforming. Uh, I think they're going to lose. They're going to lose their business to digital. Yeah, they'll be able to participate in some of it, and it will be a roll-up industry. There'll be a roll-up. There will be some very few, but uh, some very big, strong banks. Uh, but more digital will run circles around the rest of it. Laura, I think we've got to get Kathy down to D.C. You know, <laughs> on one of those committees to tell them that you know we really are. Uh, you know, there really is a possibility that we lose our edge here. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. So I I don't get involved in that. However, I will say I do know a number of regulators do listen to this show. Um, however, they're probably already the ones that are interested in this stuff anyway. So yeah, yeah. Um, maybe they're not the ones that uh, need to hear it. Um, but yeah, I, there was a funny thing that happened to me. Um, I think it was last winter and I did mention it on the show, but I was walking down the street and I think I like... I don't remember what it was like. I, you know, had, I don't know, let's say like a dentist appointment or something. And I was like leaving. So, and I just was thinking about nothing. And I passed by a bank and a little voice in my head was like, that won't be there in five years. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. Like I remember when that, like that thought just popped in my head. I was like, what? And then I thought, oh yeah, that'll probably be the case, but it'll be more like, you know, within the next 10. Um, yeah. But anyway, since you mentioned China, I was also going to ask about uh, the whole issue around central bank digital currencies, because, you know, here we've got like great momentum around Bitcoin, you know, which you can think of as this non-state money. And yet, on the other hand, we have all these governments that are working on these central bank digital currencies. And China, obviously, is already in this pilot phase of rolling one out. Um, the European Central Bank is actually soliciting feedback on a potential digital euro at the moment. The Federal Reserve has said that it is exploring a CBDC. And obviously, we know there are, you know, smart and influential people like the former CFTC chairman, Chris Giancarlo, who's advocating for a digital dollar. So at this point, I'm sure it's just, you know, a matter of when, not if. And I wondered, as we start to see more central bank digital currencies become issued, how do you think that would affect Bitcoin? And, you know, kind of what are you looking for in that movement, especially if China kind of comes out first? Like, do you think they could leverage that in any way? You know, I, I actually think that movement to CBDCs is going to, it's in a way, it's an indirect way, it's validating the space, even though it has bears no resemblance to Bitcoin, right? Nothing, night and day. In fact, this is just a way for China to continue its surveillance and verification procedures. And as more people learn that, that you know, you've got Big Brother watching everything now, I think the demand for uh, Bitcoin, stateless Bitcoin, will go up. So I... Uh, that. Yeah. And, might- and this will probably serve as like an easier on-ramp because it will, you know, their money will already be dig- digital. Right. And Dan... Yes, that's what I was going to say. That I mean, I, I agree with Kathy that it puts the the this also the, the scarcity uh, aspect of Bitcoin in stark relief. 
right? I mean, the the central banks just push a button and it's created. But I, more importantly, I think it, it just it gets people more comfortable with the concept of abstract money or digital yeah. money. And we're going to be on those new rails. And so once you're on those new rails, you're like, well, what else can we put on these rails? Oh, there's Bitcoin. There's Ethereum. I mean, I, I just think that it, it opens up people's uh, minds. And I think that's the big challenge in this space with Bitcoin and, and broadly the digital asset ecosystem. It's just getting people comfortable with how it works and why it is the future. All right. So we're kind of coming up on the hour here and we haven't even, I mean, there's just been so much activity in Bitcoin and there's just so much going on in the world that it could, that could affect Bitcoin. So there's like kind of too many things to discuss, but I will throw out some other things around um, just to see. I'm kind of curious to know what you're looking for. Um, you know, in the next, let's say, year um, in terms of like how you think this could affect Bitcoin. But, you know, we didn't go into the whole microstrategy or Square thing very much. We did not even touch PayPal integrating Bitcoin, which is, you know, obviously huge or the JP Morgan Chase investment node, which, you know, was kind of bullish on Bitcoin, which is pretty remarkable given that the CEO, Jamie Dimon, has been famously pretty dismissive of Bitcoin. So just with everything going on in the world, the you know political stuff, the election, the um, pandemic, et cetera, what are you looking for when you're thinking about what could happen with Bitcoin over the next year? Well, I think uh, I, I think the 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 rush you're seeing here is there's this there's been this aha moment. And I think the coronavirus uh, caused it, you know, uh, Innovation always takes off during tough times, always, it, because it solves a lot of problems. Uh, and that has certainly been true here. And I believe, you know, that uh, that uh, executives are looking at the accelerated shifts taking place in retail. If you listen to Sheryl Sandberg on Facebook's call last week, she made the uh, just simple observation um, that Online retail has gained 100 basis points of share every year for the last four years. In the second quarter, it gained 400 uh, basis points, so 4%. So it took four years prior, and in one quarter, we got uh, four percentage points up to 16%, and only 16% in the U.S. online retail is a percent of total. Most of us think uh, and behave as though it's much more than that. That is the beginning point of the, the sweet spot for the S-curve, just the exponential growth. Many people think Amazon's already done it, uh, but there's so much more to come. And I think, I, I think executives were awakened to a lot of digital realities and how far behind they were. If you look in the GDP report that came out this uh, last week, I have never seen a bigger surge. I think it was a 70% surge, that's an annualized rate in one quarter. I've never seen that before. There is an absolute you know, rush to get into the modern digital age. And part of that is all digital assets, including cryptocurrencies. That's why I, did, I do think you saw the MicroStrategy announcement and uh, Square integrating it into its digital wallet it saw the use cases and now stocks and everything so if you if you this digital wallet that square has this cash app is going to trample so many uh traditional financial uh institutions that they have to face the reality what is my digital future so they have to learn more about crypto assets cryptocurrencies 
and you know digital uh, digital assets broadly. So um, I think it's a wake up call, and that the movement uh, gained acceleration. You know this this okay, uh, I have to think about this. It's not this is not a, a five year phenomenon. It's now. That's what I think is happening. Dan, what yeah, about you? I mean, you know, that's that's very well said. Um, I, look, I've been, uh, I, I've sort of had the same view on Bitcoin uh, in terms of price. And in my head, it's sort of on autopilot. So I don't, you know, there's no trading of it. I'm holding. I, I think I have a price in my head years down the line. So I've actually been focused more on what I would call the mid to late stage uh businesses, companies that are in the digital asset ecosystem, not the VC or early stuff. Um, you know, you say who built that PayPal functionality? Well, it was Paxos, right? Paxos is a D, what I call a DAE, you know, company. Um, you know, Coinbase is going to have a potentially an IPO next year. Um, there are some really good companies. They're all private that are growing up in the space. My attention is squarely focused on them. Um, and, um, you know, I will be incorporating uh, equity in those companies into my own uh, portfolio. And uh, 10T uh, will, is, is going to make a business, um, uh, a business of that. So I think that that's a whole other world we haven't even discussed. Uh, there are some phenomenal companies. You know, you look at BlockFi, that's come out of nowhere. Um, you know, I could, you know, go on and on about, you know, and 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 the growth rates are are astronomical. So, um, I think that'll also bring a whole new level of attention to uh, Bitcoin because you asked the question about Bitcoin. But as and as these companies, you know, grow and hire more people, and people start to know, you know, what Kraken is, or you know, just people outside of our world uh, don't even know that there are companies in this space. They don't know that you can. You can earn five percent on your Bitcoin if you know if you want. They don't. So that that's that's something that is easy for people to understand. Uh, equity companies, uh, leadership, income statement, balance sheet. They don't have to figure out you know token economics or you know which protocol is going to you know beat you know the other protocol. So I think investors increasingly become focused on this world, right? Right, and, and the whole the whole. The whole DeFi movement, uh, and and uh, to your point, uh, Dan, you know the interest rates that you can get out there in the crypto asset world; is, those, those are attracting a lot of interest uh, relative to the competition in the the old world. Uh, and I think the best thing that happened to that ecosystem was March, the coronavirus, also because. You know, there was there were you know uh, masters of the universe involved, you know, evolving, and they thought they could do no wrong, and now their businesses are shut down. Really good in terms of getting the right governance structures put in place in this very young uh, emerging uh, technology world. So um, we're we're pretty excited about that as well. All right. Well, we will uh, get to see where all this takes us and what the future holds amidst all these shifting forces. In the meantime, where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Uh, so ARC-Invest is our research site. Uh, so we, we put all of our research up there. It's, uh, we give it away and, and we're on Twitter as well. We all, if you look on our site, you'll see our analysts. Each one of them has a handle. 
Yasin uh, Elmandra's handle, if you're interested in Bitcoin, is probably the one uh, you want to to follow. Uh, but we're we're the, the research uh, we're we're doing more and more research on Bitcoin because we do believe the institutional world should be and is getting ready to move into this space. Oh yeah, actually, Kathy, I'm glad you mentioned the open source thing because, or your research, because I did mean to mention that when you talked about open source, that you yeah. open source your research, which I think you know is definitely, obviously, something quite different in your world. But it shows that you really um, follow the philosophy and um, and you know your investment philosophy aligns with how you run your business. Yes, um, and thank Dan. You. Yeah, and 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 thanks, uh, Kathy, for doing that because I certainly have benefited from reading some of those research pieces. Oh, uh, great! Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, three to f- five years ago. There was no research in the space. That was part of the reason it, it took me a while to 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 get into it. Um, but I think you're doing great work, and you're you're helping tons of people out there. Um, Thank you. So. Um, so I would recommend that to people. Uh, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I put something out every once in a while on uh, Bitcoin, gold, macro, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, Tenty Holdings is a private equity fund. It's private. You know, you can Google. Uh, you can Google me. There are all kinds of interviews and other things that we've done. Um, you know, Gold Bullion International is the gold company I founded uh, 10 years ago. We we are still booming, and this year was a record year. And uh, you know, we do sell physical gold and uh, sell in store, and we think we are sort of the, the the institutional quality, high caliber provider in the space. We are now the third largest vault of gold in the world outside of the uh, banking system. Uh, over three hundred thousand clients. We've done over a million trades on the platform. I mean, so it's it's very robust. Um, but I, I'm not I'm not involved in the day to day there. I'm just watching it it grow, especially mm-hmm. this year. So, um, but it's really Twitter. And of course, you know, everything is on Google now. I mean, I used to remember when you could Google, you know, and before Google, I would spend, you know, two weeks in a research library looking for one book. And now, it's <laughs> like, you know, I, I did that when I studied history in college. And now it's like everything is there. It's almost, you know, where can they not find you is really the question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I um I totally agree. I just feel like even um yeah, just you know, in the two decades since I've graduated from college, just the way that I research things has, has completely changed. All right. Well, this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Dan and Kathy, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Bossy Baker, Shashank, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. 